Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And you've heard from Edie Hand before on our show, and she's told some remarkable stories. And you can hear those stories on our website, Today, you're going to hear a little bit about Edie's own life story. We love telling you stories of family, stories of mothers, and the importance they play in their children's lives for better and for worse. Here's Edie with her own story. I recall a simpler time in my life in Burnout, Alabama. It was so small that We used to laugh and say, we know burnouts burnt plum out. I remember going out back of the house and I would be making mud pies. My brothers would come up and I'll never forget how they said, so what are you cooking today, Edie? Or they called me Edith. And I said, I'm making a new mud pie. You want to try it? I remember they sat down on the little pieces of wood on the rocks, and they put that mud in their mouth. They got sick from eating that dirt and running to the house to tell mother that I'd fed them mud pies. It wasn't funny to my mother, but it was, it was funny to me. It was those little things. I remember going to the barn with the boys, and we saddle up our horses. We had two Shetland ponies and a quarter horse. It was a, a wonderful place to grow up. There was 40 acres of rolling hills. We had the garden with different chores to do. Uh, the boys did more in the garden. I was more helping mother with laundry. My mother would always have us baked when we got off a school bus, I remember, was baked sweet potatoes and chocolate doodad cookies. She would want to hear about what we had done in school for the day. I remember we had a cold glass of milk with that. That was, it's just remembering home. That was home to me. And we all need some place we can call home, either physically or a place we can go back to in our mind. And that is a place for me. And and I think the barn, I used to think, this is the place. You know, it was just simpler times, but it was the place of the most joy, I think, of feeling free and you could be anything you want to be. But the barn just spoke to me in a way of, I like the openness, I like the lofts, and you could dream. It was a place to dream. You could look out through the holes, see the sky, or you could jump out of the barn and be in a pile of sawdust or hay and we played kick the can relay runs that we would see how fast we were you know go from one tree to the next it was just nothing big but those simple games that I I cherish the most that I would call this is the place I think that place is where I found me my mother Sue was a homemaker when I was young She just lived for her children. She loved to 
dressed me up beautifully. She, I was her baby doll. And, of course, I was her first child. And the boy's always so handsome. Now, she didn't come to the barn and do the things with us, but my grandmother, Alice, did. She, she was a tomboy, my grandmother was. She, she, could, she could ride, she could milk cows, she could do anything. But my mother was the one that always had everything just right in the home, was always dressed perfect. My mother taught me about being proper, good manners. It was always important to be a lady. So I grew up with a lot of old school manners with her. She was always very proud of my accomplishments in life. I didn't get to be as close to her as I wanted to be. She was closer to the boys. I think my mother was closer to the boys because they were more needy. And she would say, you're strong. You're like mama. You're like Alice. You don't really need anybody. You you just get out there and do it. But what I wish my mother had noticed was that I did neither. So I always just was strong. Everybody said it, so I must be strong. I think it made me a loner. It was a good quality, but I don't like being alone. My grandmother, Alice, she said, please always love your mother. She loves you dearly. She just doesn't know how to connect to you. Your mother loves you. And sometimes there's just no real explanation other than just the comment of it. Because what people don't realize, I think, is is that it is important to take the time to explain to someone and talk to them. Don't hide behind feelings. I think I suppressed mine through the years to be almost 70 years old and to see that the little girl in me still wants to go to the place. Since the barn is gone, my grandmother's gone, when most of my family is gone, There is no place that I feel quite at home anymore, but I'm looking for it. I'm going to find another place because my grandmother said I could do hard things, and I will, and I do. And great job on the production by Robbie, and thanks for just a, a beautiful piece of storytelling from Edie Hand. In that barn, she said, it spoke to me. I like the openness, the lofts. You could dream. It was a place to dream. And at 70 years old, she's looking for that place. She suppressed her feelings. And she was the strong one, and it made her a loner. And everyone's got a kid like that in the family, right? Everybody thinks, oh, that that kid's okay. We'll take care of the the more needy one. Edie Hand's story, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a family-owned business. And by the way, if you know family-owned, multi-generation businesses in your community, send them our way. We love telling stories of family entrepreneurs because, my goodness, what a legacy you can leave for your family if you pass off a family business. Mitch Felderhoff is the co-owner of Munster Milling, a fourth-generation family-owned and operated animal food manufacturer located in Munster, Texas. It's been in operation since 1932 and currently employs 59 people. You might have seen Mitch in the news recently because he decided to eat nothing but the specialized dog food his company makes for 30 straight days. It got our attention. Here's Mitch. My name is Mitch Felderhoff, and I'm one of the fourth-generation owners of Munster Milling Company. Uh, I grew up in the business, and as my parents were getting ready to retire, they had considered uh, selling the business, and my brother and I didn't want to see that happen, so we went to the bank and found a way to come up with the money and and, uh, purchased the the business from them. They were kind of reluctant to invest in, you know, it's, it's a big investment, and they had put 30, 40 years into the business, and I think they were kind of ready to uh, take a breath and take a break. And, uh, you know, we were young, hungry, and, and ready to change the world. So we, we said, hey, we'll, uh, we'll take the gamble and we'll go do it. Uh, we had things that we wanted to do uh, a little bit differently than what had been done in the past. And the uh, easiest way for us to do it was to take control of the business. It was just regular standard kibble for the most part is what we made. And when we purchased it, we, uh, we wanted them to kind of change the way we did things. And so we incorporated freeze-dried into our product lineup, along with the ability to, to customize a single bag of food, actually. So now we can add bacon fat or salmon oil to a single bag if we wanted to. You know, our goal was to reduce carbohydrates in pet food and uh, make dog food different than what a lot of people currently are. And so uh, we made the move and put a freeze dryer in about a year ago, which essentially is the ability to make astronaut food for dogs. So we're taking raw food and uh, pulling the moisture out while it's frozen and uh, essentially leaving just raw organ meat that's shelf-stable. So the way freeze-drying works it's that's different than kibble is you're taking raw frozen meat and you stick it in this giant uh, chamber that looks kind of like a shipping container. probably weighs about 40,000 pounds and it's stainless steel. And we pull a vacuum on it. So there's no more air in there than there is in outer space. And then we get it down to around negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and we heat the trays up to, you know, anywhere between 30 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And when you have that big of a temperature difference in a vacuum, it causes a process called sublimation, where water goes from the ice form to a vapor form. And so it's kind of like watching dry ice sit on the table. You know how it just kind of evaporates and you see what looks like cold steam coming out of it? That's the process to freeze dry. And the benefit to it is you don't have to have a bunch of starches and sugars in there to hold the product together. You know, it's it's still in its quote-unquote frozen state, but all the moisture has been removed. Yeah, you know, kibble, you have to heat it up to, you know, 290 degrees, uh, put a lot of pressure on it, and then dry it in an oven afterwards. And the freeze dry is such a delicate, gentle process that if you've got a dog that has stomach issues, allergies of any sort, this is almost a foolproof thing that you can feed them. And so the past four years has really been focused on how do we remove carbohydrates and make food less uh, less inflammatory and, and still be a, a major employer in, in the little town that we grew up in. 
it's one of those, what can we do that Nestle and Mars can't? And they make more kibble than anybody in the world. And uh, dog obesity is at a uh, almost a crisis level. 54% of dogs are obese. And uh, we thought, how can we combat that? And so um, brother and I were just talking and said, you know, it's it's hard to make a kibble that's low enough carbohydrates to make a difference. And the only way to really kind of push the envelope on it is to start to incorporate uh, more protein and fat via freeze drying. So we're using uh, beef, chicken, fish, elk, and just started using bison. So I came up with the idea a couple of years ago when I walked into a store and I just saw tons and tons of marketing from these other companies and I thought, I can't compete with that. Uh, I, we don't have the, the bankroll to do it and we don't have the ability to write the checks, but what can what can I do that can help get our company out there and, and help us be noticed and, and kind of get the point across that we care more than them? And just kind of had the idea that, you know what, I'm willing to eat our dog food for 30 days only. I don't think any of these other companies would be. You know, for about two years, I just kicked it around on maybe I should do it, maybe I shouldn't. And then my wife and I were on our 10-year anniversary trip and, you know, you're just, you're thinking and, and hey, have I, have I, have I done life the way I wanted to so far? Have I gone all in? Am I giving it everything I have? And I just thought, you know what, I've got this idea of, of eating dog food for 30 days that I haven't executed yet. And when I get back, I need to do that. Uh, I, I need to take it to the next level. And uh, I told my wife and she just kind of looked at me and laughed and said, if, if, you know, of course you are. She was in between. She thought it was great from a uh, uh, what are we willing to do uh, for the business and to, to show customers we care. Uh, but it definitely got in the way of mealtime because the family's eating dinner and I'm, I'm the biggest one in the family and so she typically counts on me to eat my share so there were a lot more leftovers uh, the house smelled like cooked dog food for a month and uh you know the breath the breath also also had the dog food on it and then uh when i got back to the office my uh marketing director just said uh, he was kind of he was kind of in the mode of god please don't do this because uh, if if it goes wrong and you end up in the hospital then uh, i don't know how we recover from that and then uh, told my brother, and he he's like, hey, you know, it's probably a good idea, but I'm I'm glad it's not me. So go for it. Uh, day two through four, I was pretty somber and wondering how how am I going to make it another 25 to 28 days, and what the heck did I just sign up for? No seasoning, no sauces, no alcohol, no coffee. It was it was pretty much dog food and water. Four, five, six days in. Uh, everyone was uh, was on board and loving it, and uh, customers had a great time with it. And it's just been a real fun process. It tastes like you think it would. Um, it it doesn't smell great, and it doesn't taste awesome. Uh, dogs have a little bit different palate than what we do, but uh, you know I'm glad they like it. I have two yellow labs, and one of them is uh, 12, and the other one's 14 and a half. Oh, they go nuts over the freeze dried. Uh, so dogs, they're their flavor profile it comes from fat and protein, not specifically like chicken or beef. They just they can taste the fat. We've seen a, a huge increase online. I mean, almost triple the uh, visitors to our website uh, this January versus past. Uh, we've had a lot more customers calling that uh, just hey, they wanted to know more, and then uh, our retailers that have uh, independent brick and mortar locations have said that people have come in talking about it. So we're seeing a positive impact from it. Essentially, we have to be as clean as a, uh, a human-grade facility. 
And so the investment level that it has is taken and the commitment it takes is is much, much higher than what it was years ago. And we're not necessarily charging a lot more for dog food. And so uh, we just have to be leaner and more efficient. And as a smaller manufacturer that's competing against, you know, some global companies that have that huge advertising marketing budget, uh, just trying to be creative so that people know who we are is it's getting harder and harder. We try to, to work with uh, independent and uh, family-owned businesses. That's uh, just where we've spent 87 years, and we, we really like that environment and, and working with those. And then we, uh, we also sell online, uh, direct to consumer. We also do a fair amount of private labels. So if somebody wanted their own brand of dog food or treat, we'll make it for them as well. Our website is uh, munstermilling.com, and it's Munster spelled like the cheese, and then uh, milling com. A lot of dog food that's out there, it's made by candy companies and cereal companies, and it's not their main focus. It's it's just another way to fill up a truck on the way to the grocery store and try and maximize uh, the value to shareholders. And when we make a food, we make it with a dog in mind, and so much so that uh, we won't feed your dog something that we haven't eaten ourselves. And you've been listening to Mitch Felderhoff, and he's the co-owner of Monster Milling a fourth-generation family-owned and operated animal food manufacturer located in Munster, Texas. And my goodness, he lost 30 pounds, by the way, going on that little trial and uh, learned a lot and, my goodness, sold a lot of dog food along the way. I love that he said, young, hungry, and ready to change the world. That's how he described himself at that age. And how did he want to change the world? He wanted to change his world by keeping a family business in a small town and employing 59 people. And that, folks, that's changing the world. Mitch Felderhoff's story here on Our American Stories. If you have a small family business like this, multi-generation, share the story with us. My favorite is the Steinway family story. What a remarkable story. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to it. The Germans back in the day had guilds, and they didn't think they needed another piano maker. So Germany said, get out of Dodge. America's gain was Germany's loss as the great piano manufacturer stays in the family for multi-generations. Munster Milling, Mitch Felderhoff's story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa and at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. In 
neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family, so I thought. Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car, these spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens. We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years, and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, 
is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day, my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed, and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clay, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart, surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that piece. And Danny, Dale, and Junior, the sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story, a story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II... It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who would volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up when he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible, praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried, but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son. My mom told me. 
he'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is Our American Stories, Joy, Neil, Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. continue here with our American stories and now it's time for our series Ditch Digger CEO with Gary Rabine. Gary's the founder and president of perhaps the best and biggest paving company in the country. As an entrepreneur he's met many incredible businessmen and women throughout his life and in this series Gary brings us their stories. And let's just say that today's story well it's a tasty one. My whole life, you know, we were poor. Graduated last in my high school class, mixed race father, mother was an immigrant from Lithuania, dad was a book salesman, became a plastic molder and became a successful guy. That's Jimmy Leotold, a man who went from the bottom of his class to the top of the sandwich business. But you might better know him as Jimmy John. That's right, the founder of the freaky fast and freaky good Jimmy John Sandwiches. It all started with Jimmy in a predicament. Like many great entrepreneurs, Jimmy wasn't a great student. After graduating high school, college wasn't really the best option. I had no plan B, I had nowhere to go. My parents wouldn't let me live in the house. In my dad's house, you're out, period, that's it. Both of Jimmy's brothers and his father served in the army. His father was a firm believer in the discipline that military service instills in young people. So he gave young Jimmy an ultimatum. Either enlist in the army or open your own business. While visiting some friends at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, Jimmy stopped into a sandwich shop and thought to himself, wait, I could do this. And so he opened his very first Jimmy John's in Charleston, Illinois. It was the first thing in my life that I could do. I was dyslexic, I couldn't read, but I was a leader and I was smart, so the teachers thought that I wasn't making an effort. And I'm ADD, so this was the first thing in my life that I could do. $2.10 people would give me for a sandwich, and then, and then they'd tell me thank you. I never knew how to do math or how to be an accountant, but I became an accountant. I became very good with math. And so the, the numbers, you know, if I saw a day that I lost money, I had to work harder. I had to scrape that mayonnaise jar more. I had to get another three months out of that mop head. I had to make that toilet paper roll last as long as I could. And you know, those were just things that I did because it was the first thing in my life, the first thing that I could do. And I, again, you got to remember, I had gone through my dad's bankruptcy in 72 and 76. I remember powdered milk. It sucks. Now, I'm sure if I was hungry enough, I would have ate that, but it was awful. I hated that stuff. You know, I just made it happen. I don't know that I was meant. I just, I didn't have a plan B. So this is just, this all I knew. And so that's what I did. 
When I first started, Gary, I went down to Eastern Illinois University with two buddies of mine. I opened January 13th, 1983. We had 14 shifts a week, so I worked Monday, Tuesday, day, Wednesday, Thursday night, and I basically drank beer and smoked pot Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, <laughs> and, and that's what I did. So that worked for me for about a month before the first guy quit, and then I was seven days and my other guy was seven nights. And that worked for me for about another month and a half until the night guy quit. And he called me about 4.30 in the afternoon and said I quit. And so I stayed in the sandwich shop and closed the store at 2 in the morning, got up again and opened it up. And, and so I started working open to close. So the first week it was brutal. The second week it wasn't so bad. By the third week I started to learn who my customers were. By the fourth week I, it was the first thing in my entire life that I ever really could do. I was a fat kid. I never played sports. I was bullied. You know, I'd gone through a bankruptcy with my dad in 72 and 76. Running out of money was real for me. And here I was. It was all up to me to make it happen. And I learned that I could work open to close. I learned I learned my customers' names. I learned what they like to eat. If they were heavy set like me, I always put a little extra mayo on. If they were skinny <laughs> like you, Gary, I took a little off. And, uh, and then at night, at 1 o'clock in the morning when the bars closed, that's when I served all the ends of the meats. It was still meat. They just wasn't as pretty but that was my original tough deal was that I, I never knew that I could work from 8 in the morning till 2 30 right. in the morning seven days a week so that was the first big obstacle people say hey you know Jimmy John when did you really make it you know when when did you really make it big well I made my first million dollars in a year in 1994 and from 1994 until today I've only made more money every single year since 1994 and in 1994, when I made the million, I had no debt. I'd lived in 10 cities, opened up 10 stores in 10 years, paid for every store with my own money. And the reason that I did it with my own money is I didn't know how to make a business plan. First time I went to a bank, I was so intimidated. I didn't even know what to tell them. I just knew that I needed 35,000 bucks and I was gonna open a sandwich shop and I knew what I needed to buy to do. And so I would save up my money and I'd also work a store for a year, replace myself, save my money. So 10 years, 10 stores, 94, I made a million wow. bucks. And a couple of things that I've realized now that, that I've been through what I've been through. I, I made all my money nights, weekends. It's Martin Luther King Day off. We don't get a day off. It's Columbus Day. There's no day off. It's the weekend in the restaurant business. There's no day off. Weddings, funerals. There's no weddings and funerals. Our restaurant business is a lifestyle. In choosing the lifestyle that I chose and, and, and sacrificing family time and sacrificing a whole lot for what it is that I attained, I was able to do it because, you know, I did what I did. I really believe that with the internet and with iPhones, I think that people only see the glam of life. People only show the glam of themselves, the, the, the selfie, uh, look at me, <laughs> look at me, look at me. And at the same point, they most likely assume that that's what founders and CEOs do as well. And the fact of the matter right. is, it's not even part of my life. You know, I think that they don't know really how it all happens. It's only perception. And then the celebrity success stories like the general daughter she's 21 years old going to be a billionaire with her makeup or they look at mark zuckerberg who's worth 40 billion and wears a sweatshirt and jeans you know they they just assume it's just a very casual thing well it might be in software but it certainly isn't at turning salamis into into <laughs> you know into wealth Back when I first left Charleston, it was important and moved to Macomb, Illinois, which is 154 miles from door to door. 
I used to drive that route every week. And I had to learn how to leave my sandwich shop alone and have my manager treat my customers as if I was there. And so I began profit sharing with my managers way back in the mid 80s. And I did full transparency on the financials. So they saw all the money that was spent because they ordered the food. They saw what their electric bill was because the electric bill came to them. So I started full transparency and profit sharing back in, in, the, in the mid 80s before anybody did it. Now, Chick-fil-A might have been doing it now. Chick-fil-A splits 50-50 with their managers. So the managers really act like, like owners because they're treated like wow. owners. And so I started that back in the mid 80s. And, and now to this day, our Jimmy John's company stores, we share profits with the managers. And, uh, and we really believe that creates an environment that enables them. I, I've got managers that are six-figure managers. And that doesn't happen in the business, but I've been doing it forever because there's a lot of detail that goes into running these sandwich shops. And it's all about the small stuff. If you take care of the small stuff, the big stuff takes care of itself. And the only way you can have them think about managing paper towels and managing the electricity and turning the air conditioning up at night and back down again when you arrive in the morning is when you tie them to the financial statement and it becomes a free market situation. And then they realize the harder they work, the more they make, then it's lights out. Now we're just partners that doesn't require area supervision. And these guys just, uh, they operate on their own and they become unicorns. In addition to that, 14 of 17 department heads at Jimmy John's all came from the sandwich shop and they're all millionaires now. To be able to take these kids and, and teach them and let them be, you know, come up and grow into the company is really a wonderful thing. So it's a, it feels good, you know, it, it feels good. It's no fun eating a big chocolate cake alone, believe you me. Uh, so it, 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 it's wonderful to share. But my greatest accomplishment is I raised children who are hardworking, that are grounded, that are balanced. If you looked at any of their social media, you would never see anything that has to do with our lifestyle. It is not a value of theirs. They'll look you in the eye, they'll shake your hand, they'll contribute. I've got some really good grounded kids and I think that's probably my greatest reward that I have in my entire life. And of course, Jimmy couldn't do that without another very special person. I was sitting here on the podcast right now and my wife dropped off my lunch for today. You know, my wife sets me up for success. You know, yesterday morning, we, we were, in the, we're, we're big farmers down here. We, we went and took a walk around a farm for four miles. And my wife is always there for me to be my, she's my life partner. You know, it's not normal to have a woman grow as I've grown. You know, I went from survival to success. We just celebrated 20 years together, and this woman has kept up with me the whole time. And when I'm weak, she's strong, and when she's weak, I'm strong. I think we just got lucky. I really think we just got lucky because I'm not a perfect man, and I've failed in many ways, and, and she has as well, and we both admit it. And yet here we are today stronger than ever. you got to have chemistry. That's what gets you through the hard times. If you don't have the crazy chemistry and you hit one of those incredible obstacles that you will mm. face as a couple, the only thing really that gets you through is chemistry. So my advice there is kiss a lot of frogs until you find the chemistry that makes yeah. you crazy yeah, yeah, so yeah. that you can get you through the hard times because without chemistry, it, it doesn't work. And typically what you're looking for, what you think you're looking for, when you're really ready, it's totally opposite of what you think you're looking for. There's no such thing as the old spice guy on the white horse running down the beach with his shirt off. That that ain't that that that's that's a commercial. That ain't real. You've been listening to Jimmy Leotode, aka Jimmy John, the guy who founded that entire big, big national franchise that well you know by name, and it's him. It's the guy who you probably made fun of in high school. Right? Or the guy who you were made fun of in high school. 
right? And it's the person who didn't fit in, wasn't the high achiever in the way that society measured high achievers. And yet, well, look what he did with his life. I thought one of the great insights, you got to work hard to get anything you want. He goes, I learned that I could work open to close. And that's a big deal. And seven days a week. And just putting in that time and driving from city to city. By 1994, 10 stores, 10 cities, his first million dollars. What an achievement. And by the way, to see the full interviews with Gary's guests, go to ditchdiggerceo.com. And to hire Gary for any of your paving needs, go to raybine.com. That's R-A-B-I-N-E.com. They're the best. And we love these stories. Jimmy's story of Jimmy John's here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we're talking with Harlan Lebo, who's written a terrific book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Harlan writes about Woodstock, the Manson murders, the internet, and what we'll be discussing today the moon landing. So let's start at the beginning, if we can. Who is Vannevar Bush, and why did you lead with his story? Vannevar Bush is one of the great unsung heroes of, well, America, but American policy, American government, and in large measure, the hero of how we all think and learn today. He was a scientist in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. He was constantly observing the American scene, looking at the mistakes that have been made in America before him. And the time was ripe, right at the end of World War II, to try to establish where we were going to go from here after World War II. And President Roosevelt asked him that very question, asked him for a detailed outline of how we could proceed as a nation. And Vannevar Bush wrote it. And Roosevelt did not live to see it, but it was presented to President Truman in 1945. And it really was a plan called Science, the Endless Frontier, that set the standard for how America would train its next generation of scientists, technicians, and engineers, and in the process also train and educate all the rest of us as well. America was a powerhouse. It was the great engine of industry, production, in technology, uh, equipment, farm implements, steel. Uh, It was also the great resource provider of the Western world for years and years and years. But that had very little to do with original thinking in terms of doing basic research and understanding core discovery. Most of that was coming from the great research institutions in Europe and in Great Britain. And that was painfully obvious to a very small number of people in America who were thought that it was just fine that we led the world in making steel and bridges and creating food. Um, But it didn't leave America in a place for advancing itself very well in in a changing world. And the changing world started as early as World War I. As a great example of this, the, the airplane, the first airplane flown by the Wright brothers 
was American. From there, progress was very slow for a lot of reasons. The Wright brothers were very contentious about their legal rights to the airplane. Uh, there were a lot of lawsuits. It held progress back. And if you look at the Wright brothers, in 1903, December of 1903, they made the first flight in uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Well, not a whole lot happened in terms of progress, even by the Wright brothers, in terms of flight for several years. It wasn't until really 1909 that things really started to get going with the airplane again, in large measure because the Wrights were trying unsuccessfully, for the most part, to advance their own planes and to protect their rights. Um, all of that managed to have a giant magnifying glass put on it during the World War I, when America was finally drawn into World War I in April of 1917, we did not have one combat aircraft ready to deploy in Europe. Our famous pilots like Eddie Rickenbacker, they flew French planes or British planes. They didn't fly American planes in combat. And that was just one example of how America was unprepared. And Vannevar Bush noted that, remembered that, and wanted to make sure that after World War II that America was better prepared than it was for more than a century before that. Let me read something from your book. It really stuck out. A scorecard of the Nobel Prizes, the world's premier awards for scientific achievement, is perhaps an oversimplified tally, but it nevertheless says much about the status of basic research in the United States. Between 1901 and 1945, 111 Nobel Prizes were awarded in physics, chemistry, and medicine. The United States, with more universities and institutions than many of the other leading countries combined, won a total of only 18 of those prizes in those fields. This was a catalyst for Bush, right? He wanted to change that number. He wanted to. And the easiest way to understand that is to look at the difference between applied research and basic research. Applied research is refining things that already exist, making better farm implements, finding better ways to make steel, finding more efficient ways to create military weapons or build buildings. And America did that very well. But in terms of basic research, looking at new, new findings, new understanding of the world and core discoveries, that's what the United States was not strong on. And the great example of that was we had very few research universities in this country, even into the 1920s there weren't. When, when the physics lab was created at Harvard, uh, it was more than 200 years after the university had been created. So things started to happen with the creation of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, the first university in the United States that was deliberately created as a research institution. Uh, but it was slow going. And basic research was way underfunded, even through World War II. And to what degree did the GI Bill, obviously there was some real push in legislation, and, but to what degree did the GI Bill help jettison in a lot of this too, the, the degree to which the government started to get involved in funding well, institutions and education, higher education in general? Right. The GI Bill was a huge catalyst for putting many, many, many more people in college than had ever been before. So it was really two issues side by side. Vannevar Bush created his plan called Science the Endless Frontier, which established where the United States could go with the proper funding in terms of training scientists, engineers, technicians, creating a whole core of intellectual discovery at the major universities in the United States and providing the money to do it. So that was that started immediately after World War II at exactly the same time that millions of Americans, mostly men, were 
uh, coming out of the military and looking for something to do. And the GI Bill was there to support them. So millions went to college. Millions were able to be trained in technical and scientific and engineering fields that would never have happened before. And the results were dramatic. Uh, and that really did establish the intellectual and technical capabilities of the United States to move forward with great new plans, not just to build bigger and better buildings, to be, create new and innovative processes and techniques and things. And one of those things that got created was an entire enterprise of a space program. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. This hour, we're talking about the moon and the moon landing. But all the events and all the things that happened and the people who made it happen. Uh, we're walking through that and we'll return with Harlan Lebo uh, after these messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo, his book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Go to Amazon.com and buy it. You won't put it down. And the fun of it is you can just read each of these as almost their own book because it feels like four books inside one. Let's talk about the next central character in this book, and that is a man named Werner von Braun. Uh, talk about who he was and why he was so important for the United States and the space program. Werner von Braun was a rocket nut. That's the only way to describe him, just like we have computer nuts today. He was a German scientist and engineer uh, whose dream was always to fly into outer space, to have a great civilian space program. Well, right after World War I was no time to be having that dream in Germany because there was no money for anything. Uh, but he did. he was involved as a hobbyist in the space program in Germany. The, the short version is... The German military saw the opportunity to create a military base for its, its offensive forces by using rockets because the Versailles Treaty after World War I had eliminated most other opportunities for them to create a military platform for an offensive strategy. So they had the money to put into to rocketry. Werner von Braun joined the German space program, the German military space program, and was the perfect fit. He was young, brilliant, a tremendous charismatic leader, uh, and developed and led the creation of the entire German rocket program, which, with the exception of the V-1, which came late in the war, which was sort of a, a point-and-shoot weapon, that could be shot down. It flew f slower than the speed of sound. The ultimate, the ultimate tool that von Braun created was the V2 rocket. It was the first ballistic rocket, the first faster than uh, speed of sound rocket that could be, that could be targeted fairly closely. And that rocket was fired several thousand times toward the end of the war in the attempt to be the ultimate weapon for the Germans. And von Braun was also developing plans for even longer range missiles, missiles that from Europe could reach not just Britain, but could cross the Atlantic and hit the East Coast of the United States. All of that ended in the early months of 1945, when it was clear that, that Germany was going to lose the war. Von Braun and his team knew that. 
they evacuated their their operations in northern Germany, managed to get to the south of the country into the uh, German Alps, the Bavarian Alps, and planned their own surrender. And they did not want to surrender to the Russians. They wound up surrendering to the United States. And at the same time that he was planning to surrender, he, von Braun was already being targeted as an asset for the United States. The United States in the waning days of World War II had thousands of experts all over Europe scouring both written and published records as well as looking for talent and manpower that could be applied to the American enterprise after the war. And Werner von Braun and his team were high on that list, at least their material was. And as a result, the United States was able to confiscate about 400 railroad cars full of rocketry equipment and actual V-2 missiles and other related equipment and plans that were taken to the United States. And the decision at that point was made because von Braun had surrendered in early May of 1945, was to bring along von Braun and his team to serve on the American space program. So it's, it's not an exaggeration at all to say that literally months, a few months after von Braun was planning the, the uh, air assault, the aerospace rocketry assault on the United States, he was in the United States working for the American government on our space program. It's quite a story, and it showed the pragmatism of American officials. Uh, let's face it, we didn't want the Russians to get von Braun. We needed him, and though he had launched 3,100, it says you, you wrote 3,100 of these V-2 rockets were launched at London and Antwerp and other targets throughout Europe. And, of course, the plan was, well, one day America, too. But we, we took him anyway. We took a Nazi who had killed allies, and it wasn't without political dissent, was it? No, there was some protest about it. Uh, the protest didn't really surface until later. I, uh, probably 1946, 1947, there was some fussing over it. But I think that really is one of the most morally disturbing episodes of World War II and its aftermath. It really says as much about von Braun and his team who built the V-2, by the way, with more than 10,000 deaths caused by slave labor alone. In fact, there were more people who died building the V-2 than were killed by the V-2 being landed at its targets. But it also says a whole lot about America's decisions about national security in a post-war world. We had entered a world where we were in direct conflict with the Soviet Union, fortunately a cold war, not a hot war. But we recognized at the time that we felt we needed to be ready for a hot war. And what was the way to do that? We had a very early baby space program, and it needed the kind of talent that von Braun and his team could bring to it. So we made the command decisions to bring him into our space program. What would have been the better solution? To jail him, to have him executed, to let the Soviets get him? Uh, probably not, but it doesn't mean it's any less morally troubling. That's what leadership is sometimes about, and even statesmanship. Um, sometimes you have to calibrate these things correctly or the higher cost in not bringing von Braun to the United States could have been that a foreign power got his talents and his teams. I want to read something because it was so interesting. Van Braun would become thoroughly American. He married a distant cousin and raised a family when he moved to the Army's missile facilities in Huntsville, Alabama, ahead of rocket development. He took out a FAH loan to buy a house and he became a respected civic leader. A bit later, you said Von Braun would connect with Walt Disney and guide him on a tour of the Huntsville operations 
10 years after leading Nazi rocket development, Von Braun was on Walt Disney's TV series telling American families about the space projects to come. That's just rich. He always, in spite of his, in spite of the deal with the devil he made, and it really was a deal with the devil to be part of the German space program, and he always defended being part of the German military operation, just like Americans would be part of their own military operation. What he could never defend and really ducked for many years was the role of slave labor in creating his, in creating his weapons. Uh, he never really truly showed his complicity in that. But uh, he was... He was a German. He felt he needed to support his space program and his military program, but he really did always want to be involved in civilian space. And he came to this country. He was working on our space program, which at that moment when he came was very much a military program. So he was still developing military weapons, and it would become it would be a very long time. It would be almost 10 years before the right kind of a spark got lit that would ignite our interest in non-military space, and Von Braun became proud of that very quickly. Let's talk about the next key figure, and let's talk about Sam Krauss. Who was he? Sam Krauss is a lifelong friend of my family who just happened to be one of the early aerospace scientists, like thousands of others like him, who worked on a variety of programs across the country in NASA facilities. Of course, then they weren't called NASA. It was called NACA, or they actually was called NACA. They didn't use the acronym as a word. They called it the NACA. And ever since World War I, the NACA was the American primary basic development organization with facilities in Maryland, in Northern California, in Virginia, and in several other places as well that developed questions about aviation, primarily propeller aviation and airplanes. But that changed, of course, as other things changed, like the arrival of the jet engine, the arrival of supersonic travel, and the, the questions generally that come with speed. Speed and altitude are the driving issues in, in when the transition between aviation, meaning planes, and aerospace, meaning not just planes, but anything that flies at any altitude, including rockets and supersonic jets, those issues became more and more part of the NACA operation. And Sam, like thousands of others, was involved in those answering those basic questions. Basic questions as basic as how do you get a fast-moving object from outer space to land safely on the ground uh, without burning up? That was a basic question that no one really understood until that came out of research at this facility that Sam Krauss worked at. And when we continue, Harlan Lebo takes us through this remarkable chapter in his book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. And by the way, you say a crucial major difference between aviation and aerospace is heat. We just talked about how these men were trying to solve this problem. When we come back, even bigger problems to come. Landing a man on the moon, no duck walk. Again, the book is 100 Days. Go to Amazon.com, to BarnesandNoble.com. Go to a bookstore, buy the book. Or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. Paul and Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo. His book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Beep. Uh, Why the chapter title Beep? Beep indicates the great milestone in the American space program. It had absolutely nothing to do with anything that America had done and everything to do with what the Soviet Union had done. On October 4th, 1957, it was a large surprise, to say the least, that the Soviet Union had launched the first orbiting object around the globe, Sputnik 1. Uh, The first time anything had been launched to that altitude, it was orbiting the Earth, it was going over the heads of everyone in the United States, and the Russians were very conveniently willing to tell us when and where you could listen to the sound that it made, because all that Sputnik 1 did was fly over our heads and go beep, beep, beep. You can hear those sounds. There's a listing in the back of my book of where you can go to hear that sound, but that was an amazing transformation. It took the country by storm. Um, There's still some contention now looking back on it. Was America terrified or just fascinated by that experience? But there's no question that they were fascinated whether they were terrified or not. The fact that the Soviets, who were viewed as a still as a backwards country in many ways, could somehow manage to beat us to the punch in putting a satellite in orbit was a big shock to the American public and especially to the American Congress. Indeed, you write on the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite, often called the most trusted man in America, put the issue into perspective. Sputnik is a serious threat, if not to our immediate security, then to our sense of security. Life magazine, often the great interpreter of the American character declared that Sputnik was a devastating blow to the prestige of the United States. And we had a great wartime president in charge, Eisenhower. And he didn't see this one coming and didn't actually respond quickly to the problem. I don't know that he'd quite seen the problem or identified it as fast as he could have or should have. No, because he had been, whether he chose the decision or not, his advisors told him that the satellite program that we had should rely on quality rather than speed. They, weren't, they wanted to build, and were building, a satellite that had some technical capability that could be put in the air, not as quickly as the Russians claimed they were going to do their own satellite. And as a result, we waited too long, and no one in the Eisenhower administration who was willing to make a decision was thinking about the importance of being first. Well, we, we never missed that lesson again. There are many times where we weren't first, especially in the space program. But there was no doubt about it that uh, we learned that being first is a heck of a lot more important than being good. Uh, and as a result, our space program was behind the Russians from the beginning, and it immediately set us up for having a, a uh, space race with the Russians. Who was going to advance the fastest? And then who would make it to the moon fastest? Because that was the ultimate goal for both of our programs at the time. Uh, Although we didn't even have a well-defined idea of getting to the moon and landing on the moon for another four years after Sputnik launched. And that goes into the Kennedy administration. Let's talk about Ike and how he saw one of the problems being the competition and the rivalries, the internal internecine rivalries between the branches of the military and his decision to form a separate entity to house this kind of research in. Talk about that. Eisenhower was convinced that we should not put a satellite in space that flew aboard a military rocket. 
which is strange because it was no secret at all that the the rocket that launched Sputnik one into space was a variant of one of their uh, missile carrying uh, bomb carrying missiles. Uh, so Eisenhower wanted to wait until the development of the Navy Reconnaissance Laboratory, which is <laughs> which somehow he viewed as a civilian operation, even though it was run by the Navy, that they would get their our first shot at putting a satellite in space. And that's what happened. It took longer than they hoped. It was an, it was a unreliable platform, and they tried to get it launched in December of 1957, and it was a national disaster. So let's talk about the space war, because it really, in the end, ramps up, because it ultimately becomes a political issue in the 1960 race. Talk about how Kennedy first viewed the space program, and then how did that impression of its importance change uh, as he went from being a candidate to being a young president of the United States? Well, Kennedy was not an early believer in the space program. Kennedy knew, even when he was a senator in the late 50s, that a space program mounted with any level of effectiveness was going to be a very expensive proposition, and it was going to carve up money that could be devoted to other social programs and other projects at home, on the ground at least. But as he became, as it came closer to the 1960 election, and it was clear that Kennedy was going to run, and it was clear that a space race between the Russians and us was active, it was already active, even though we didn't have a lot of effectiveness then yet, Kennedy did start to embrace the program. But he knew that it needed a more defined objective. Uh, and he knew that there needed to be a, a time period attached to that. So very early in his administration, uh, in one of his first speeches to a joint session of Congress, he talked about the great needs, great national needs. And one of those great national needs was to take the extraordinary step of creating part of a, a part of NASA would be to devote uh, before the 1960s were concluded, a mission that would take astronauts to the moon and return them to Earth. That had never been part of the Eisenhower program. And at that, during the Eisenhower years, there were some plans, still not well-defined, to send a rocket to the moon with men on board and return it, but not to land. That was considered way too complex and not possible. And this was after the Mercury program was created. So we already had our Mercury program and our first seven astronauts in place, and they were starting a program. And that was really as far as the program was going to go, at least, it, as, at least as far as the Eisenhower administration was concerned. There were some very tentative plans until Kennedy in May of 1961 made the great declaration to Congress that we should go to the moon and land and return. By the way, you write here, within weeks of that joint session speech, Congress would increase NASA's budget by 89% and double it the following year. With a total of 15 minutes of experience in manned spaceflight, the United States had committed to spending billions for a lunar landing in less than nine years. The countdown clock was ticking. Now talk about that. It was. Uh, even today, looking back on it, it is absolutely incredible that we were able to pull this off. And Kennedy recognized that. In his speech, he made a major speech about space at Rice University in September of 1962, talking about the great challenges of going to the moon using rockets that had not been built yet, using materials that had not even been discovered yet, using techniques and, and other practices that were not even known and had to be developed from scratch. Uh, and all of those things 
by the way, shooting at a target a quarter of a million miles away with three people on board and bringing them back alive was an incredible operation. And it took an extraordinary, an extraordinary national commitment. But Kennedy believed he combined two great, great techniques in the way he presented this to the American people. First, he strongly believed that the only reason we should be doing the space, the mission to the moon, was to establish the United States as the preeminent science and technological power on Earth, uh, in many ways more powerful than the Russians. Now, that had its own complications because of the Vietnam War and other issues, so it may not have been as successful as it could have been in that respect. But the, the other issue was the fact that we could, we could even attempt this and do this required such a huge investment involving thousands of companies, more than 400,000 Americans in all kinds of fields, using resources from every state in the United States, uh, was only possible uh, because of the amount of money that we were going to spend on this. And he was very concerned about that. He, he expressed, not publicly, but in conversations that had been recorded, that he was not that interested in space. He thought it was good to explore space, but he didn't think it was worth billions and billions unless there was a specific reason to go. And that was, at this point, to surpass the Russians and to establish ourselves. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. More with this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. We continue with Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Go to Amazon.com, buy it now. You will not put it down. We've been talking about this great Rice University speech. Kennedy was a salesman. He had to sell this now. He was putting so much at risk with the amount of money and time and resources behind this mission. Let's take a listen to one part of Kennedy's speech at Rice University. There is no strife. No prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. And Harlan, we were talking offline and talking about what a salesman he was. He was trying to tap that national pride of doing the impossible and doing something hard and something big and bold and deserving of the American people's talents and ambitions. 
And I think you just hit on it right there. That was the driving force behind what many things that Kennedy proposed, whether it was the uh, space program or the Peace Corps or many other domestic issues at home, in particular civil rights, was to establish them as great challenges that the American people were willing to take on and succeed at doing. Let's talk a little about this this technical achievement. Kennedy Kennedy passes never to see his mission accomplished, right? But uh, in the end, we dig in. Talk about some of the technological achievements, because there were so many different things we had to accomplish all at once, and each problem prompted a solution that prompted another problem, and there was more troubleshooting than we could imagine. But what were a couple of the big problems that we had to take care of? If you could maybe talk about the top two or three. Well, the biggest problem, of course, is how you get how you get three men, everything they needed to live, and their equipment on a journey into space, which means getting them into Earth orbit, spinning them around the Earth, pushing them out into space, and getting them to the moon. And that required the largest, most powerful rocket ever created, by far the most complicated physical device ever built. Uh, again, much of it with technology that was not proven in the Saturn V rocket. It was the tallest rocket we'd ever built. It was by far the most powerful we'd ever done. Uh, it alone, fully loaded with fuel, weighed about as much as a Navy cruiser. Uh, the explosive impact, had it exploded on the pad, would have been the equivalent of about 4,000 tons of TNT. Uh, it was devastating in its technic technical complexity. Three million moving parts, 70,000 systems. Uh, just to get a vehicle carrying three men into outer space around the globe and to the moon. So the biggest one was just designing the Saturn V in a way that would work. And as complicated as it was, as incredible a project as it was, it flew 13 times and it made it into orbit and made it on its way all 13 times with only with one mission having very minor problems that were uh, fixed almost immediately. That was Apollo 6. But it worked. Uh, but the, the, when you look at the space program, one of the things that really is really fascinating about it is what you just touched on, is that every problem leads to another, even if you solve it, every problem leads to a solution, and that solution leads to another problem. Uh, and there were thousands upon thousands of problems, everything from you know, how the guys go to the bathroom in space to how you feed them, uh, how they survive you know, space sickness, um, how you survive the launch, uh, the, this, the most basic one, how do you get the rocket from where it's built in the assembly building out to the pad? All of these things were tremendous challenges. Um, probably the biggest of the challenges other than the rocket itself was the lunar lander, which was a very complex, very fragile device uh, built by Grumman on Long Island. And it had problems from the start. It was uh, an amazing, amazing challenge to build a craft light enough, but versatile enough to get the two men who are going to fly it from the Apollo command module in orbit around the moon down to the Earth, the moon's surface, and then back again. Um, that was very difficult, a very difficult prospect. Indeed, it was fascinating. In the assembly, they had to build a 526-foot-tall vehicle assembly building and then to get this gigantic missile, this gigantic rocket, 
6.2 million tons. They had to build a special road called the Crawler Way because take this sucker over any normal road and it collapses. And so, as, as you said, one problem leads to another, but there we are on the fateful day, and the world gets to watch this thing explode and catapult into the air and talk about how the media and the world covered it because, in the end, 600 million people around the world watched this. Yes, for Apollo 11, there were yeah, more than 600 million people either watched it on TV or at least land and watched the men on the moon, watched Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong on the moon, or listened to it on the radio or watched it later in coverage. Uh, they did make it. They, the, the mission Apollo 11 flew without the slightest hitch. Uh, it worked perfectly. The small problem, the one small problem they had on, on landing was that they overloaded their computer, which by today's standards, the average cell phone these days has much more power. The cell phone you hold in your hand has much more power than the entire computing operation that ran the Apollo mission to the moon. So the entire floor of computers in Houston at the at the Johnson Space Flight Center has much less computing had at the time much less computing power than your cell phone does now. But other than that one small problem on landing with the compu- with the computer, they did manage to land successfully, can do their mission successfully, and then come home. And the world really did stop. Uh, around the world, people stopped where they were. They watched it on TV. They stayed at home. They saw it in the marketplace in in the middle of India or in the jungle of Vietnam or at looking at a storefront television when back when there were storefront televisions in the United States and the world was completely absorbed by three men traveling to the moon and two of them landing there. In the Bronx where the Yankees were playing the Washington Senators, a message went up on the scoreboard, they're on the moon, as the game was halted for a moment of silence followed by the singing of America the Beautiful. In Moscow, Soviet citizens were photographed watching excerpts of the moonwalk, seemingly reluctant to acknowledge the inevitable. Soviet media buried the story late in broadcast, but Russians were seen celebrating and congratulating Americans. It's a great day, said one Muscovite. Uh, That's just remarkable, because you can't, in the end, as much as there was competition, in the end, a human being, an earthling, had landed on the moon. Yes, it it really was it really did literally bring the whole world together, if only briefly, but it brought the whole world together to share the experience of our landing Apollo 11 on the moon. I'm going to read uh, one final uh, paragraph. In spite of the delays, the pressure, and the extraordinary demands of creating the most technically rigorous experiment in history, the nation had responded to Kennedy's challenge. Eight years and two months after the declaration to Congress, 400,000 people across the country and three astronauts in Apollo 11 had succeeded in landing on the moon with five months to spare. Yep. They, they made it. Had it not, we had a very tragic fire on Apollo 1. Apollo 1 was in testing on the pad in Kennedy Space Center. Apollo 1 had a, a fire on board the Apollo spacecraft and three of our astronauts were killed. Had it not been for that and the delays in the mission caused by the investigation and the refurbishing of the spacecraft, we would have been that we might have gone earlier. But the other side of that is, if it hadn't been for the, that fire and those three men dying, we probably wouldn't have made it to the moon anyway because the the spacecraft would not have made it. But we made it with five months to spare, 
And what's extraordinary about looking at uh, the American space program and talking to anybody who was involved with it at the time is that or those original words before the decade is out that Kennedy used when he spoke to Congress, before the decade is out, rang true for all of them. And it resonated for the entire decade. They never forgot that that was part of the initial goal. And that really was the driving force behind the mission. And we did make it with five months to spare. Ah, the power of a deadline. Any editor's greatest moment is knowing what they can do to a writer when they say finish it by Sunday. But my goodness, what a deadline Kennedy had set. 100 days, how four events in 1969 shaped America. We're talking to Harlan Lebo, the book's author. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of Harlan's book for yourself, you can find it at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. Harlan Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. <laughs> 